If I'm up there, I feel like I'm a million miles away from all. And it's kind of like going to a family reunion and sitting out on the porch. <laughs> so, unless anyone has strong objection, I'll just stand down here on common ground. You know, I actually grew up not very far from here, uh, over in Chase County. That was where I was born, born in Emporia. And... Uh, Spent my first 10 years on a horse and cattle ranch over there. So whenever I come back, I feel like I'm coming home. It's very hard for me to leave. We just had a, a great gathering with some young pastors and their wives. And of course, Jesse and Bree were there with us. Uh, we had pastors from a pastor from Montana. I uh, had a pastor from Idaho. Where else? Iowa. Uh, Jesse had to come a long ways to come and join us. But... Uh, What's that? Arizona. And there was a guy there from Arizona. That's right. We had a great time. Well, I want to thank all of you for allowing me to come in and share the word with you. You know, it's an incredible privilege to open God's word and to share God's word with his people. It's something that I try never to take for granted. Uh, I never take for granted that there are people who are willing to come and even listen. Uh, there are so many things that demand our attention today and so many distractions that try to occupy our time, and yet the one thing that we really need to give our time to is what we're doing this morning, and that is opening the Word and letting the Spirit of God speak to us. So if you would, open with me in your Bible to the book of Ruth, the little book of Ruth, uh, first called, I believe, by J. Vernon McGee, The Romance of Redemption. The Little Book of Ruth is a real story about real people and events that occurred about 1,300 years before the Lord Jesus Christ came into the world. And yet the Book of Ruth is not just a history, it's also a prophecy. It talks about Israel outside the land. That's Elimelech and Naomi in chapter 1. And they left Bethlehem, which is the house of bread. And as a result of their leaving the land, which they had been commanded repeatedly not to do by God, he said in Psalm 37, verses 3 and 4, dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness and delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. They chose not to remain in the land and they left. And of course, we know historically, every time Israel was out of the land, whether we're talking about the exile into the Babylonish captivity, whether we're talking about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, the last 2,000 years have been a very sad and tragic tale of the suffering of Israel outside the land. But as a result of Israel going outside the land, a Gentile is introduced into the plan of redemption, and that is Ruth, the young widow from Moab, and of course, where her sister Orpah chooses to go back into Moab to her people. And Naomi says to her gods, uh, they were idol worshipers. Their chief god was Chemosh, and he demanded child sacrifice. So not a very good thing to go back to. Naomi chose, or Ruth chose, to forsake her family and her land and to return with Naomi and to become her servant. We see Ruth sorrowing in chapter one, but her sorrow brings her to faith in the God of Israel. 
And then we see her in chapter two serving, and she takes advantage of a provision in the Mosaic law where the poor were able to glean behind the reapers so that they would have something to eat. We oftentimes think of the law of Moses as just a lot of laws that make no sense to us at all. But really, if you look at them in light of the time in which the people lived, they were provisions to care for and provide for the people. And so in chapter two, she's serving, she's out there in the hot sun, she's working, gathering up the grain that is dropped by the reapers, but lo and behold, she meets the man of the hour named Boaz. Boaz's name means in him is strength. And in the story, he's actually a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's introduced to us in Ruth chapter two and verse two, almost in a dramatic fashion. The writer of the book says, behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. And it's kind of like, you know, the, the trumpet sounds and the curtain parts and the hero of the story comes out. And in him is strength. The meaning of his name in him is strength comes from Bethlehem. And of course, as we found out yesterday, the name of the little village or town at that time, Bethlehem, occurs seven times in the story of Ruth. Uh, there are always these little intricate uh, details that sometimes get lost, but seven is an important number as we go through the book. And then of course we see, as we just looked in our last hour, Naomi is instructing Ruth in the laws that are for their protection. They have lost land because Elimelech, when he left the land and died, he left behind a farm. And in ancient Israel, you were not allowed to sell your farm. Your land remained in your family in perpetuity because the land belonged to God and the children of Israel belonged to God. And therefore he had allotted to each of them a property and that property was to remain theirs uh, and be passed on to sons and daughters forever and ever. So God had a plan. If you leased your land, if you were poor and you needed to lease your land, you could let someone farm it. You could let them raise livestock. You could let them raise crops on it, but only for a certain duration of time. And then someone in the family had to redeem it or wait until the year of Jubilee. And in the year of Jubilee, I wish we had a year of Jubilee in America. In the year of Jubilee, all debts were forgiven and all property returned to its original owner and the land went back to the family. So that's a little bit of background of where we are at this point. But along with redeeming the land, there was actually provision made to redeem persons. In other words, if your brother, and this sounds a little bit weird to us, women hear this and they go, I wouldn't want to marry your brother. I don't think my wife would want to marry any of my brothers. But the way the law read, if a brother married a widow and died without having children, the brother would take the widow as his wife. Usually it would be a younger brother, uh, maybe not married yet. And so he would take the widow as his wife in order to raise up a descendant after his brother's name. In other words, his brother's name would not be blotted out. We're gonna find out in chapter four this morning that having your name blotted out is not a good thing. 
You probably have read several times in the Old Testament where you would read, if this person does something wrong, his name will be blotted out from among his people. That was a terrible, terrible thing to have done. And we're going to see that as we move on. I want to give you five points, though, to really begin our story this morning. If you would, uh, and if you have a pen and notebook, you might want to just jot these five points down because whether you realize it or not, the relevance of this little book relates to each and every one of us this morning. And the first point I want us to understand is this. We have all lost our inheritance due to sin. Whether you realize it or not, God has an inheritance for you. But that inheritance has been robbed from us because of sin. Paul tells us in Romans 6 and verse 23, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered the world, and death by sin, and so death spread to all, because all have sinned. And with sin entering the world and death coming with sin, we have lost our inheritance, each and every one of us. Uh, and some people see the older brother that we're going to read about in just a moment actually as a symbol of Satan who tried to steal the inheritance of this earth from its rightful owners. Secondly, only Jesus Christ is able to redeem us and our inheritance. Only Jesus Christ is able to redeem us and our inheritance. The word kinsman uh, or near relative, as some of the translations have it, prop, crops up quite a bit in the uh, book of Ruth, but the Hebrew word is goel. And Goel is a word that means a kinsman redeemer. Jesus Christ is our kinsman redeemer. And there were at least three criteria for a man to be a kinsman redeemer. And Jesus meets them all. Here they are. Number one, he must be a near relative. What does Paul tell us? Let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to clutch or to cling to, but he made himself of no reputation and being found in the form of a man, he humbled himself to death, even the death of the cross. He took on flesh so that he might become our near relative. He is not only a near relative, secondly, he is able to redeem us. The, the kinsman redeemer had to be a relative and he had to be able. He had to have the wherewithal, the resources for that redemption. He had to be able to pay, for example, for the land. The Lord Jesus Christ had what it took to redeem you and I from the curse of sin and death. And the third one is the greatest. The kinsman had to be willing he had to be willing to redeem the land. And that's we're going to see that issue come up in chapter four. So Jesus Christ is the only one who can redeem us of those three qualities. He's a relative. He is able and he is willing. The third main point, when we accept and appeal to him as our redeemer, he becomes to us the one who brings us into his family. He redeems us and makes us a member of his family. But like Ruth, in chapter 3, we have to make our appeal to him. In other words, whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. We read that, of course, in Romans 10, 13. So we have to appeal to him in order to receive his redemption. Number four, when he returns, you know, we just were singing, 
when we came across that phrase about the angels roaring. I don't know about you, but I would love to have heard the roar that went up from the mighty angels in heaven on resurrection morning. But there's another roar coming. And it's the roar that is going to come when Jesus Christ returns for his bride and we are taken with him to meet him and to enter into his eternal kingdom in heaven. And that is going to be a mighty, mighty roar. When he returns, our inheritance will be restored to us. Uh, I don't know about you, I grew up on a ranch close to a thousand acres out in the Flint Hills, and that has always been my home. I have never felt at home. I've traveled all over the world. I've been uh, in so many places that I lose track of where I am sometimes. That's always home. But it's no longer mine. It's been lost. One day, our inheritance, and it's going to be much greater than that little postage stamp of a thousand acres of Chase County grass, we have an inheritance. Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, that we've been redeemed to an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and fades not away, reserved in heaven for us who are kept by the power of God. Is that great or not? It's reserved for me in heaven and I'm being kept here on earth. And one day, me and my inheritance are going to come together. It's going to be glorious. So when he returns, our inheritance will be restored. And the fifth point, the Redeemer is graciously waiting for our appeal to him to redeem us. I would hope and trust that each and every one of us here this morning have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as our Savior, but you know what? We can never take it for granted. We can never assume that everyone knows the way of salvation. There is so much confusion and there's so much wrong information that is given about what's required. And the scripture tells us very simply, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall have eternal life. John tells us in John chapter uh, John, the gospel of John chapter one and verse 12, as many as received him to them, he gave the right, the power, the authority to become the children of God, even those who believe in his name. So we have to make that appeal. He stands by willing, ready, and able to provide our salvation. How's that for an introduction? I'm halfway through my class and we've got the whole chapter ahead of us. I hope you have saddled up and are ready to go because now we're going to launch into chapter four. In chapter four, Boaz is dealing with the matter in a manner of integrity because there's an older brother and the older brother uh, has the first right of redemption. Boaz is not going to cut corners. He knows that God doesn't bless those who violate his word. And so he's going to be faithful. So Boaz went up to the gate and sat down there. The gate was the place where transactions were taken care of. It would be the equivalent of our courthouse. And behold, the close relative of whom Boaz had spoken came by and Boaz said, come aside, friend, and sit down here. Well, that's not actually what he said. The Hebrew says, he said, ho, poloni, almoni. Now, I'm sure all of you know what poloni almoni means, so I don't need to explain it. But in the event that you don't speak Hebrew, poloni almoni is almost a slur. Now, this is intentional. This is in the text for a reason. Because we find that the older 
relative is his older brother, and we find out that both of them are younger brothers of Elimelech, who starts the story. Elimelech, whose name means God is my king, went away from the word and the plan of his king, and as a result, he suffered discipline and ultimately died. He left behind two brothers. One is Boaz's older brother, and then, of course, Boaz is the third. Uh, I identify with, I'm the third of three brothers in my own home. I only could hope that I could be as good as Boaz. Why does Boaz speak to his older brother in this way? His name is blotted out because he refused to fulfill his responsibility. May his name be blotted out in Israel. You hear that phrase or read that phrase. His name is not here. He is called Poloni Almoni, and in the Hebrew, uh, probably the closest we can get in English is so-and-so. In other words, I'm not going to identify you and I'm not going to record your name because you failed the test. He took 10 men of the elders of the city, we read in verse two, and said, sit down here, and they sat down. And he said to the close relative, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, sold the piece of land that belonged to our brother Elimelech. We now know the relationship between these three. And he's acting on the law of redemption from Leviticus 25. And so he said in verse four, I thought to inform you saying, buy it back in the presence of the inhabitants, inhabitants and the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. If you will not redeem it, then tell me that I may know there is no one but you to redeem it, and I am next after you. And the older brother said, I will redeem it. He's got a plot of ground that is good for farming. It is good for raising livestock. What farmer doesn't want more land? My dad always used to say, all I want is my land and everything that adjoins it. More land. That's a great thing. And so the older brother says, you bet, I will redeem it. I will take the land. He knows the land because it belonged to his older brother. Boaz, however, is not only a man of integrity, he's a man of subtlety. He had a little plan and his little plan was, I'm going to drop the heaviest thing on him last. So verse five, Boaz says, on the day that you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you must also buy it from Ruth, the Moabites. Now, if you know anything about Moab, they had a uh, not so beautiful past and they had a uh, lot of uh, corruption within the nation, a lot of idolatry and Moabites were kind of, you know, like the people that live south of the tracks or you know, every state has the next state to it that's always a little bit lower. I remember in high school, we used to laugh about the Okies, and then I met people in Oklahoma, and they laughed about the Arkies. Then I met the people in uh, Arkansas, and they all laugh about the people in Louisiana, and someone always has someone that they can look down on. Uh, it's, uh, it's just the way life seems to go. But at any rate, he drops the news on him that the widow is a Moabitess, the wife of the dead, you must redeem her as well to perpetuate the name of the dead through his inheritance. In other words, you don't just get the land. If you take the land, you take the widow. Verse six, the close relative said, I cannot redeem it for myself lest I ruin my own inheritance. Now we must understand there was a little bit of a price here for Boaz. 
Because when you took the widow and you had your firstborn son, your firstborn son was not named after you. Your firstborn son was named after your brother. So there is a little bit of a price that he's paying here. He says, I don't want to ruin my own inheritance. You redeem the right of redemption for yourself. I cannot redeem it. Verse 7 informs us that the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging to confirm anything was the man took off his sandal and gave it to the other. Originally, if you go back and read Deuteronomy 25, verse 7 and following, you'll find it was a little bit stronger. The man who was unwilling to redeem the land, the widow would take his sandal off and spit in his face. Why was that? Because he was not a man. It was a way of saying, you are not a man of integrity. You are not willing to hold up your responsibilities. You are not willing to care for the poor and those who have uh, suffered loss. And therefore, you deserve some insult. But by the time they come down here, not quite so bad. It's just take off your shoe. And so in confirming the uh, transaction, he took off his sandal and gave it to the other. The close relative said to Bo Boaz, buy it for yourself. And he took off his sandal, indicating I have no right to walk on that inheritance. Verse nine, so Boaz said to the elders of all the people, you were witnesses this day that I bought all that was Elimelech's and all that was Chilean and Malon's from the hand of Naomi. Moreover, verse 10, Ruth the Moabitess, the widow of Malon, I have acquired as my wife to perpetuate the name of the dead. You see how important the name was in the roster. When you get to Matthew chapter one and Luke chapter three, you begin to realize why names were so important because there you read the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Matthew, it goes to Abraham. In Luke, it goes all the way to Adam. I met a man in South India who had a role that he rolled out for me and he showed me his family lineage from father to grandfather to great grandfather for 1500 years. He had the whole list. He said, these are my ancestors. And he said, every one of them is a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. We know, of course, that the disciple Thomas made it as far as Eastern India, as far as what used to be called Madras uh, in India, and his tomb is actually there, and I've seen it. So people have been turning to Christ over there for centuries and centuries. So he is going to raise up the name of his brother, that the name may not be cut off from among his brethren's and notice from his position at the gate. This tells us something else about Elimelech, puts him a little bit lower in our estimation. When he fled because of the famine, he was one of the elders of the city. He had a responsibility to his people. He had a responsibility to stay with them. He had a responsibility to lead them, and he was not willing to do it. He had a position in the gate that is now going to be filled. So verse 11, all the people at the gate and the elders said, we are witnesses. The Lord make the woman who is coming to your house like Rachel and Leah, the two who built the house of Israel. And may you prosper in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. This is the last time the name Bethlehem occurs, the seventh time in the book. And it's very interesting. May you be famous in Bethlehem. Well, 1300 years later, a descendant of Boaz and Ruth 
would be born in Bethlehem, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this part really astounds me. In verse 12, they begin saying, may your house be like the house of Perez. Perez, you'll remember if you go back to Genesis chapter 38, was a son of Judah, a son of Judah through Tamar. And Perez continues the lineage that carried the prophecy from Genesis chapter 49 and verse 10 that the rulership would not depart from Judah. The king, in other words, would come from Judah. That's why Perez is mentioned, but it tells me something else. These people knew the Messianic line. I don't know how they knew it, but they knew the Messianic line, and they are acknowledging to Boaz, may that lineage continue through you. May your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you from this woman. And immediately we read in verse 13, Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife. When he went into her, the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son. Double blessing. She has now gained a uh, famous and mighty and powerful husband, and she has now also been blessed with a son. Verse 14, the women said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative. I want you to notice this. They are not talking about Boaz. I want you to think about this. These people were very, very spiritually astute. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a close relative and may his name be famous in Israel. May he be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you is better to you than seven sons has born him. She's talking about the baby. She's talking about the one that's going to carry on the lineage. Verse 16, then Naomi took the child and laid him on her bosom and became a nurse to him. And also the neighbor women gave him a name saying, there is a son born to Naomi. And they called his name Obed. Names are important in the Old Testament. Obed means servant. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now we see the connection. This is the genealogy of Perez. Perez begot Hezron. Hezron begot Ram. You know, we read these in the Old Testament and we just, our heads start spinning. Begot, begot, begot. But we find out in this that Ram begot Abinadab. Abinadab begot Nashon. Nashon begot Salmon. Now we're getting into recognizable territory because when they sent the two spies into Jericho and they found Rahab the harlot who had believed in the Lord because of the word she had heard of the exodus taking place, who was one of those spies? We assume that one of them was Salmon who she married. Salmon begot Boaz, Boaz begot Obed, Obed begot Jesse, and Jesse begot David. Boaz would have heard from his mother Rahab of the coming of Joshua and the conquest of the land. And of course, in order to pick up the story, if you look at Matthew chapter one and you read the first six verses, you have four names that occur in the lineage that are women. It was 
something that was never done in ancient times. They did not write the names of women, only the names of men, but you find the name of Tamar, you find the name of uh, Rahab, you find the name of Ruth, and you find the name of Bathsheba. Very important, all four of them show the grace of God in forgiving sin and including people into his family. I hope you're in the family tonight. I hope, or today, this morning. Sometimes I forget where I am. Because you know the way of salvation is so simple. How simple is the plan of salvation? Well, let's just refresh our memory on how simple it is. The simplicity of salvation is as simple as coming when you're called. Because Jesus calls in Matthew 28 saying, Come unto me all you who labor, and I will give you rest. And each and every one of us have the opportunity to answer that call. It's as simple as drinking water when you're thirsty. John the Baptist said, whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall, or Jesus said, whoever drinks of the water that I give him shall never thirst, but the water that I give him shall become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. The plan of salvation is as simple as eating bread. Jesus said, I am the bread of life in John 6, 35. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. The plan of salvation is as simple as opening a door. In John 10, verse 9, Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters in through me, he shall be saved. It's as simple as receiving a gift that's offered. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, from Romans 6.23. It's as simple as calling for help. Whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord will be saved. We're told in Romans 10 and verse 13. And last of all, and my favorite, it's as simple as the trust of a little child. Except you become as little children, you will not enter into eternal life, Jesus tells us. I hope you all have eternal life, but I hope more than that. I hope that in addition to having eternal life, we learn something from the book of Ruth. You know, the will of God is revealed to us in his word. His will is very clear. We can all read it. But in addition to his will, there's a plan. God has a plan for your life. That plan is not written out in this book. That plan is personal and it requires discovery on our part. When Paul met Jesus on the Damascus Road, he, had a, uh, he asked a question that all of us should ask. Lord, what will you have me to do? What is the plan of God for my life? Where does he want me to be? What does he want me to do? Why does he want me to do it? All of these things are a part of growing in our relationship with him through our study of the word so that we understand the plan of God for our life. If we trust him, if we acknowledge him in all our ways, what does the scripture tell us? He is going to lead us and guide us into that plan. I pray that's a reality for each and every one of us, not only this Sunday morning, but every day of our life. Let's close in prayer. Father, how thankful we are for your word and how thankful we are for the hope, the comfort, the encouragement, and the strength that it gives us. We ask, Father, that you will quicken our hearts, 
stir within us a desire to respond to the offer of grace that you give to us moment by moment and day by day. Help us to redeem the time because the days are evil. We all bemoan the state of our country. We all cry about conditions around us. And yet, Father, how often do we change the things that we can change? It's not given to any of us to change the course of this world, but every one of us can change the course of history in our personal life and in our personal sphere. So, Father, give us a hunger for your word, a desire to obey, and a willingness to serve that we might reflect your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please turn your hymnals to number 513, 